School vouchers for all. So that every child gets the education that best fits their individual needs. But at what cost? It almost looks as if we are um, uh, putting forth a blank check. Today was uh, a win for parents. Run up to session, what will surface? What will die? Truths on the cutting room floor. From the governor's mouth to lawmakers' ears. They think with dollar signs. A newly filed defamation bill takes aim at the media. Does it hold press accountable or hamper free speech? We are opposed to the bailing project. Baylink on the rails, on track, and in the crosshairs. There's a large group of folks who live on Miami Beach, who live in Miami, folks who are interested and want to see this built. Mass transit to the beach. Right now, we're in gridlock. From South Florida to Tallahassee, the big news of the week, all live this week in South Florida. Good Sunday morning. I'm Glenna Milberg. Thanks so much for tuning in. In the next hour, we take the dive into plans that could historically alter state education and one that takes aim at the privileges of the free press. First, though, HB1, the Florida House bill that makes school vouchers available to all. It is sailing through committees as the priority bill of leadership. Every Florida student, kindergartner through high school senior, would have the opportunity to get state money to choose private school or even homeschool instead of the neighborhood public school. Supporters say that kind of state-funded choice levels the playing field for all families. Opponents fear the demise of Florida's public schools. What it would all cost was a big debate this week in the House Pre-K-12 Appropriations Committee. That's where they crunch the numbers. And we want to welcome right now two South Florida reps on that committee. Ranking Democrat Patricia Williams from Pompano Beach and Republican Rep Vicki Lopez from Miami. So good to have the ladies here today. Good morning. Thank you, Glenda. Good morning. Good morning. So, you know, we've talked about this bill and this program before and the opposing perspectives is really a fascinating argument. So for our viewers who may or may not be in the weeds with this, I just want to kind of set that um, set that up as a first question. So as the as the ranking Democrat on that subcommittee, Patricia Williams, why don't you um, frame what is your opposition to this bill? Well, a couple reasons that I oppose this bill. Number one, public school system takes all children. This bill would allow voucher schools to pick and choose the students that they would like to attend their schools. Number two, the education part of it, when we allow all students attend any school, the public school system, this voucher would allow everyone in the state of Florida to receive a voucher, even millionaires, which are able to pay for private schools already. And number two, when you are picking and choosing students that you would like to attend your school, you are being um, against students that's gay, students that has disability problems, people with different religions, people with different um, disadvantaged backgrounds. So if you're gonna take state-funded money you should not be allowed to pick and choose which students you would like to attend your school. So you, you're talking about some of the guardrails that are not specifically in the bill. Vicki Lopez, um, you actually not only a supporter, you are a co-sponsor of this bill. Fr frame your support and, and maybe, you know, answer, address some of those concerns. Sure. 
sure. Um, so to answer my esteemed colleagues' um, objection on the private schools, we already have students on scholarship that attend private schools today. As a matter of fact, we have 211,000 who today take advantage of a scholarship and go to private schools. So, you know, the thought that somehow the private schools will not take people or won't take everyone, they've certainly proven themselves to already take a, a, a significant amount of students um, that are currently enrolled in the scholarship program. My, my um, uh, support for this really has been about unlocking school choice for every student, regardless of race or income or background or zip code, by expanding school choice scholarship eligible to every student. And quite frankly, there are millionaires who send their children to public school. Um, and that doesn't mean that they don't get to have a free education there. We're not talking about parents. We're talking about students. Every student should be afforded their particular education for whatever suits them in terms of the most success, academic success. Um, and I think parents are the very perfect person to decide. I mean, one of the uh, prime co-sponsors was a, you know, Representative Placencia said she had three children. All three of them went to different schools. They bounced back and forth. And all of them today are uh, adults who are incredibly successful, even one where, where she had a special needs child because she was afforded that opportunity. And this bill actually now says every student should be afforded that opportunity. All right, so let's let's talk about the money because that's what your specific committee has was doing this week, just a couple of days ago. So the official state estimate, everyone should know, is quote unquote indeterminate. So there really is no hard and fast number that the state has that this would cost right now. Um, what the forecast uh, expected numbers look like, correct and correct me if I'm wrong, it looks like this is forecast from the number of voucher students in Florida projected out and also from the Arizona numbers. Arizona just went to universal vouchers and the first six months kind of was used as a as a gauge of how many people would take advantage of this and and the cost estimate is four billion dollars for the first year. Um, does that, for, Vicki, does that sound legit to you? No, it doesn't, and I'll tell you why. I, I think the sponsor of the bill, Representative Kaylee Tuck, did a good job at breaking down that $4 billion. She said that $1.1 billion was really the current FEC scholarship um, recipients, so that wouldn't factor in. They're already under scholarship. Another $890 million are for current public school students who are already funded by the FEFP. Um, so that wouldn't enter into the discussion of what's what's an additional cost. Then there was the $1.9 billion that are really um, all new private school students. And again, that does not include those private schools that uh, private school students that are already on FTC. And then the remaining $85 million were for homeschooled um, students who are no longer included in this bill. So let me pick so, up on. I'm sorry, I, I oh, sorry. thought you were finished. Go ahead. I was just going to. I was just going to say. So the real funding um, estimates that we received would be an additional 209.6 million, which includes the additional private school students plus the additional uh, students that have disabilities that would be increased in this program. All right. So let me pick up on a number that you threw out. The 890 million dollars um, would. That's the specific number that would be the um, amount that would fund public school students who might now decide to go private or homeschooled. And I think what you're saying is that's the amount per student, I think it's just under $8,000 per student that Florida gives public schools right now. So if 890 million would be for the public school students, if that number of, of students chose and families chose to go private or to go homeschool or out of public schools, 
Patricia Williams, would that amount leave essentially public schools? Yes, it would leave the public school system. But when you are um, increasing the cap of the salary that people can actually um, get the voucher, that, that would be a lot higher than we're estimating right now because we have no idea how many will actually use the voucher. And I'm looking at if you're able to use the voucher, nobody's turning away free money. So everybody is going to be getting that voucher for their families. So you're, uh, correct me if I hear you wrong, you're thinking that everyone's going to leave public school? Is that what you meant by that? No, I'm not saying everyone. Those that's not able to afford, what I see here is have and have not. I know what segregation looks like. And if I'm a single parent and I'm working two to three jobs just to put a roof over my children's head, my children will stay in the public school system. But if I'm not able to pay that additional funding to go to a private school, I am one of the ones that will stay in the public school system. Everyone else that has the ability to pay for their child to go somewhere else, they will take their children and go somewhere else. Vicki Lopez, do you agree with that perspective? I, I don't. I respectfully disagree. We actually had a young uh, young woman testify. Her mother was a single mother, and her mother, um, she was a, a, an African-American student from, from Duval County, and she very much um, was in support of the bill because she said that her single mother really wanted her to go to a school of choice, and she was able to choose one that really helped her, and she reported to us that she had been uh, accepted to three universities, and she was excited about, you know, what her future would hold which may not have been the case if she'd not had choice. And honestly, I don't believe that everyone's going to leave the public schools. I mean, I had a gifted child. I sent him to public school because that was the very best gifted education he would receive anywhere. Um, so I, I don't I don't agree that everyone's going to leave the public schools. And quite frankly, if you're a public school um, parent now, I mean, you have a choice, which I think is wonderful. You can now make determinations about your child. Where will your child succeed? Um, and the voucher will give you that, that opportunity. Either you stay in the public school, you go to a charter school, you go to a private school, or you homeschool your child. All right, there's a, a couple more things in that bill I want to talk about when we come right back from a quick break. Stay tuned. Digging into HB1, that big behemoth uh, school choice bill now flying through committee. Vicki Lopez, Republican from Miami. Patricia Williams, Democrat from Pompano Beach, uh, both on the K-12 uh, appropriations subcommittee. So, Vicki, I want to pick up something uh, that Patricia said a little while ago about a level playing field. And the fact that in this bill, there really is no stipulation or mandate for any school to accept vouchers. So there are schools that are still much more expensive as private schools than others might be. Uh, people with resources will still have that option that others may not. So how, how do you level that playing field in this case? So I think that, you know, there's in order for a private school to participate, they have to meet some eligibility requirements, right? No, there is no capping of tuition. So, for instance, if a middle if a middle income family would like to send their child to a school that 
the tuition is 12000 they get their $8,000 voucher, and that is a significant assistance to helping them because maybe they can only afford the 4000 They couldn't afford the twelve. So they are they are grabbing what is rightfully theirs in terms of the um, what would be an FEFP allocation if their child was going to a public school, right? So th the money is actually following the child. The, the parent has to make a decision whether they can afford anything in excess of the $8,000 that they would get. And of course, remember the $8,000 is just an average across the state. It, that will depend on the school districts, but that's a good average to, to work with. So, I mean, I think what we're doing is we're saying to people, look, this is your money. You take it and spend it any way you want to spend it. You can either stay in a public school or you can take that $8,000 and go to a charter school or to a private school, or you can keep it because here's the good part. You can keep it to do other things, right? This isn't just tuition and fees. If you choose, you, you may you may pay for um, instructional materials. You can, you can pay for testing fees. And the thing that I love most is a new um, a fee that can be paid for, which is the pre-apprenticeship programs for students who don't want to go to college but want to earn a trade so now they're going to be able to actually get uh, the pre-approved pre-apprenticeship programs will be available to these families and to the students who choose to take on a, a a certification a vocational certification so again it's being tailored to the student so what uh, we had spoken right when the bill was filed, we had spoken to the House Speaker, Paul Renner, and he likened this to a health savings account. And a lot of people know what that is. You get your insurance money, you kind of get and spend it how you see fit. So Patricia Williams, um, you know, I want, I want to just talk about public schools for a moment because there are so many public schools in Florida that do so much to attract students, magnets and, and charter schools. And do you think that this might make public schools and the administrations of the individual schools a, a bit more competitive. Um, you know, they're, they're playing in a market now. Maybe maybe that's a, a good competition for them. What do you think? I don't think so. I, I, I want to disagree with that because the requirements for the public school system, the teachers need to be certified. That's not a requirement of the voucher schools. Um, the public school system, they require um, additional services for children that have the IEP. That's not required for the voucher schools. Um, when we, the children leave the public school systems and go over to these voucher schools, they could be on grade level. But when they return from these voucher schools, they come back to the public school. Sometimes they come back with no money and they are behind from the grade level that they supposed to be in the um, private schools. So all the requirements that we hold our public school system standards to, they're not held to the same standards when they're going to these private um, voucher schools. Right. So if there, we there are, make it- are, are there no, uh, for private school, you call them voucher schools that they're, I'm assuming you're talking about accredited private schools or, or, or are you afraid of just fly by night is this fly by night? There's no, there's no requirement that they have for these schools now. If this universal voucher goes through, there's no requirements for those schools to be certified. There's no requirements for the teachers to be certified. They can get anybody off the streets. There's no requirements, no barriers in place to make sure that we are sending our children to somewhere that they are actually going to 
a certified teacher or a certified school or accredited school. Vicki no, Lopez looks not. like she wants to answer. <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry, but right now, a private school has to be eligible uh, to participate in the program. And there are standards. And no, you can't just be a fly-by-night school. Um, parents are going to be talking, are required to talk with the school about all their programming, about all their services. And quite frankly, it's hard for me to believe that a private school that Representative Williams is talking about sends a student back less than. I mean, I, I would venture to say that there are private schools in Miami that would take incredible offense to the fact, um, and, and I can name a few that send most of their students to Ivy League schools for colleges. I mean, these are rigorous training, um, and, and I think that this is one of the reasons why parents want to be able to have a choice, right? I mean, I, I don't I don't necessarily agree that a student who goes to a private school will be worse off um, than a student that went to a public school. And I, I totally agree. I mean, even the state board of school superintendents are, is in favor of this bill because they said, listen, we're not afraid of competition, nor should they be. Um, the, I would think that now every public and private school and charter school is going to have to do their best because you're going to have to recruit students. So the market is going to bear what a parent wants. When we buy things, we want the very best. Well, we certainly want it for our children. Is there any uh, concern that this state money would and, and does now, I think, as a matter of fact, go toward paying for religious school, whatever that religion may be? Is that sort of a, a, a blurred line church versus state? I, I don't think so. I think that, in fact, this is the money that this, the parents have paid into. It's a it's a it's a fund, right? It's your it's your tax dollars. Um, and right now, there are children that do go to religious schools, um, especially the Jewish day schools, the Catholic schools, the the uh, Christian schools. Um, and again, that's a parent's choice where they're going to send their student. Patricia Williams. Yes. Yeah. Let's talk about this having a conversation with the school, the, the um, universal voucher schools, the private school, whatever. Um, if that's true, we're going to have a conversation. Put it in writing. Put it on their website. L educate the um, parents to let them know what they are actually getting into, whether the schools is accredited, whether the teachers are certified or not. Put it on your website. All the new ones that's going to receive state-funded voucher money, Put it on the web, put it in writing. Because I know if it's not in writing, it didn't happen. You so can maybe tell that... me all day long behind the scenes that the sky is green. But until you put it on your website and saying your sky is green in your school, I need to have something in writing to say this is what you said. We maybe. have thousands and thousands of children that leave the public school system going over to these different schools because they feel that they have all the blows and whistles and everything is going to be great when they get over there. Once they get over there, the money is already exchanged hands. They send these children back to the um, public school system. And sometimes they come back to these public school systems and the money is not coming along with them. It depends when they actually leave those private institutions and come back to the public schools. All right, so I am afraid that's gonna have to be the last word. This is something we'll be watching as it goes through the committee process and, and certainly when and if it becomes law. So I invite you both back anytime to discuss and we really appreciate the time. Thank you so much, Glenna. Thank you. All right, up next, the governor asked. Lawmakers said yes, they filed a bill this week targeting the privilege that freedom of the press gives the news media. Who did the governor learn that from? You'll meet some of them next.
probably the leading purveyors of disinformation in our entire society right now. We were there when the governor staged and anchored his own TV-style roundtable to highlight grievances with what he calls the mainstream corporate press. And as if answering that call, lawmakers filed a bill this week that would make it easier for people to sue media companies for defamation. The backlash from First Amendment rights groups was immediate. Two of the people invited to share their expertise on that roundtable are here with us right now. Vel Friedman is a South Florida attorney whose client was the subject of a report that CNN would retract and apologize for. Carson Holloway is a fellow with the conservative Claremont Institute who wrote an article recently about libel and cancel culture. And it is great to have you both on the program with us today. Morning, Glenn. How are you? Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us, Glenna. So, Vel, let me start with you because your client was one example that the governor talked about this week of uh, of a story where the press mischaracterized a person or a situation and then ended up retracting what they had said, issued an apology. Um, is that appropriate consequences, or obviously you think there should be more? Yeah, you know, Glenn, I mean, my client in that case, as you mentioned, Zachary Young, was the subject of, as the lawsuit lays out, um, a, a, a report by CNN that claimed he had been operating on a black market when evacuating Afghanistans from Afghanistan, um, Afghans rather, from Afghanistan after the U.S. pulled out and the Taliban took over. And the the report went on to talk about how he exploited these Afghans and, and things like that. And um, after that happened, his business went to zero, just no more business. And he's been unable to support himself. CNN did apologize, but his business hasn't returned. And so, I mean, that's what our, that's what our courts are for, I think, in situations like this. So in this case, you, your lawsuit is about recouping any kind of money that he lost because of what happened. Um, Carson Holloway, your, your article last month was really interesting. Um, it was actually called libel and cancel culture, and it argues that New York Times versus Sullivan should be revisited. Um, for anyone who doesn't know what that is, that's a 1960s case that sort of elevated the legal standard for which media can be sued. Um, that mm -hmm. is the prevailing opinion and the prevailing standard. And and that's actually in this bill. That was written into the bill that, that Supreme Court of uh, the United States should revisit New York Times versus Sullivan. So unlike re, uh, trying to re, um, get financial difficulties returned, compensated for, you know, you argued for kind of a different standard. Why is that? Yeah, that's right. Um, I've contended in print or on the internet that New York Times versus Sullivan deserves to be revisited because it imposes a new standard with regard to libel, the so-called actual malice standard, which makes it harder for a public official or a public figure to win in a libel case than would be the case with an ordinary citizen. And so my argument is that that standard itself is not really rooted in the original meaning of the uh, First Amendment. If you look back at how the founders thought about libel and freedom of speech, they simply treated libelous or defamatory statements as outside the scope of freedom of speech and of the press. And they didn't draw a distinction between public figures or public officials or other people. Uh, they thought it was important that the law and the ability to sue 
should protect everybody's right to their reputation equally. Um, and I also argue in some things I've written that I think it creates kind of a dysfunctional environment for our democracy if you don't have a sufficiently workable standard by which public figures as well as anybody else can defend their reputation because it kind of creates an environment in which the press doesn't think they have to be as careful as perhaps they should be. Um, one thing I'd like to point can, out. Can though, I just go on the record and say, as a sure. member of the press, I work really, I and my colleagues work very, very, very hard to be very careful and to be right. Mm -hmm. Just wanted to kind of throw that no, out. No, I, on, that, on that point, Glenn, I, you know, the, I think you have to put yourself back into the where the, the Supreme Court was in New York Times versus Sullivan. Like you said, it's the 1960s case. It was 1964. At that time, the internet didn't exist, and news companies worked really, really hard to get things right. There were fact checkers employed, editors employed, and things like that. And, and since that court's decision, um, which the court appeared to believe was necessary to ensure robust reporting, right, that like we need to protect the media, we need to make sure that the media can go out there and talk about things without unnecessary consequences. But since then, uh, you know, the, the landscape has shifted with the advent of the internet. And now the internet has given everyone a podium or a soapbox to, you know, get out there and say something. And that's changed the landscape from making sure you deliver correct uh, content to, to enabling folks to battle for clicks and generate content. And so what we've seen is the media companies, not all of them, Glenna, but, but some of them or many of them get rid of their fact checkers and their editors in favor of content to push out content. And so the New York Times versus Sullivan case has, has resulted in the situation where publishing facts without any investigation or without any fact checking is actually the optimal legal strategy because in a sense, ignorance is bliss. And if you don't know that what you're saying is wrong, then you should be protected. But it and sounds so to me, it's, I don't mean to interrupt you, but it just sounds, it sounds to me that um, the proliferation of, well, the internet wasn't around for New York Times versus Sullivan, but social media, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, I mean, misinformation abounds and, you know, respectfully, many of it may be mistaken and certainly some of it is absolutely intentional but then how do you protect legitimate news operations from that kind of media well why wouldn't a, like a, a normal negligence standard protect the media right in, in ensuring that nobody's saying the media should be held strictly liable for something they say that's wrong but what the law would do if it was revisited i think in many people's view and i'm sure uh, professor hall will have some views on this but the law should should revert back to this stance where the media, like everybody else, should be held accountable for what they say. And that means they need to do a reasonable investigation. They need to take reasonable steps to ensure what they're saying is, is right and accurate. If they fail in that, they should be held accountable. Why are they held up on a pedestal and given protections and immunities that other people are not? So, Carson, what Vel is saying, um, you know, consequences for people that do things wrong, that sounds perfectly legitimate. Um, but how do you then, you know, we're not talking theory here, we're talking this is in a bill to become mm -hmm. Florida law. So how then do you sort of protect a, a news organization's ability to operate without fear of being bankrupted in good faith? Well, that's an important consideration. I think it's worth mentioning, too, that although there's controversy over a bill like this, there are actually things that everybody agrees on, which I think is everybody agrees that freedom of the press is a vital principle to our democracy. So we don't want a situation in which news outlets can be bankrupted by frivolous suits. Um, on the other hand, 
everybody agrees or should agree that person's right to their reputation is also one of the key values that the law seeks to protect. So even if one were to reverse New York Times versus Sullivan, which I don't think would be required if this bill were, were passed and upheld, but even if that were to happen, you would still have freedom of the press. We had freedom of the press before New York Times versus Sullivan. Um, it was not routine for news organizations to be bankrupted before New York Times versus Sullivan. Yeah, you have to have some care in the law and like, the amounts of damages that can be awarded. And as uh, Vel was saying, the standards by which you would have to demonstrate that someone had actually defamed another, which wouldn't just be the press, by the way. I mean, the law doesn't look only to the press, but to anybody who defames another citizen. Um, under the current standards, you have to show, if you're a public figure, actual malice. You have to show that they knew they were lying or that they acted with reckless disregard. If you took that standard away or constrained it, um, you would have to show that someone said something about you that was false in the first place, that was damaging to your reputation in the second place, and as Vel was pointing out, that they did it negligently or carelessly. Uh, so I think that's a standard that would be reasonably balancing of the various considerations that we've been talking about. Hmm. Um, let's, uh, I want to steal a couple more minutes from you, but I need to hit a break. So if you stay tuned, we'll be back in two. Attorney Vel Friedman and Carson Holloway, a fellow at the Claremont Institute, talking about a new bill filed this week. Uh, defamation is the title of it, and some some really quite stringent plan to cut back on uh, mistakes that the press might make, whether or not intentional, and the way to levy consequences against that. Vel, I want to um, throw something out at you that's part of this bill. The bill states that anonymous sources will automatically be presumed false. And while that on face value actually makes a lot of sense to a lot of people, I'm sure, um, having had reports, read reports as a consumer with anonymous sources, and I guess um, if you throw it way back to Deep Throat in Watergate, anonymous sources are, are kind of a last resort for reporters, but certainly in some cases critical for very important reasons. Weigh in on that if you would. Yeah, I mean, I think the the bill is aimed at I think the broader problems that are that are found within the defamation context. And you know, to put that in perspective, Lena, you know, Justice Gorsuch recently joined a dissent from the court's refusal, the Supreme Court's refusal to take up a case on certiorari. And in doing so, he cited statistics. He said that the uh, defamation trials have declined dramatically over the decades since the New York Times decision. And that even once you get to a trial, he says the very rare successful plaintiff that actually wins after a jury trial has a one in five chance of losing on post-trial motions and a one in 10 chance of losing on appeal. And so I think the bill is recognizing that the cards are stacked against innocent people who are being really hurt by defamation, who can't make the showings that the court has required. And so it, it aims to do a lot of things to fix that, one of which is what you talk about, this presumption that anonymous statements are false. If that bill were to pass and were re-upheld you know, uh, against constitutional challenges or the court were to revisit that standard, um, then, you know, Glenn, I think it would put the onus on media companies to really investigate an anonymous tip um, before they go forward with it, because it would be difficult for them to rely on that without showing that they reasonably did so. 
Carson, I, I want to hear your perspective on that as well and, and maybe throw in, might that have a, a chilling effect on reporting? Yeah, the chilling effect discussion is a very interesting one, and I would look at it this way, and then I'll come back and say some more about the anonymous sources in a moment. A chilling effect sounds like a bad thing, and in First Amendment discussions, it's always treated as a bad thing to have a chilling effect on freedom of speech and freedom of the press. And of course, in a general sense, that's true. <clears throat> but on the other hand, we are talking about people's right to their reputation and the right to be free from being defamed. So if the legal standards create a chilling effect on defamatory speech, that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Um, media or anybody who speaks and uses their freedom of speech and of the press to attack other people's characters need to make sure that they're telling the truth. So that's can, can worth I just, noting. Can I, mean, I just jump sure. in here? Um, I, you know, that's a that's a large assumption that they would use the freedom of the press to attack character. I'm mm -hmm. not sure I've ever met a reporter who did that ever. Well, I, I mean, Glenna, to... I'm sorry. Go ahead. Sorry, Oh, I've touched a nerve here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm litigating a case right now where we've got you know Mr. Young sitting here with no income because of what we allege was a completely false and defamatory segment by CNN. One, I'll point out that they apologized for after we sent them a demand letter, a legal letter, threatening suit. So, I understood. You know I, I guess my question is, that was that a mistake? On the, They didn't do their due but, diligence, or was there malice involved? Well, obviously, Glenna, we believe malice was involved, but 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 and 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 I'm sure the the you know the the case will play out, and obviously there are certain orders in place we can't talk about some of the things we've seen in the case, so I can't comment on that specifically in this case. But what I can say as a more general matter is, Mr. Young would have really appreciated a chilling effect on CNN's rush to publishing, so if they didn't have to issue the apology because the apology didn't fix anything but a chilling effect would have been quite nice. Understood, okay. Um, Carson, c continue, I, I wanted you to sure. finish up on that. Well, just on the point you were making there, Glenna, I mean, you said that you're very careful to fact check, and I believe you, and I believe that's true of most journalists, but it only takes a few who are careless or who are animated by some kind of malice to do harm to individuals' reputations. Um, I would think about it this way. It's equally true, I think, that most people who are in business, most contractors, most doctors, do their best to do their job correctly, but you still have laws that allow people to sue when they're injured because there's always a handful who don't do a good job. And I think that's part of what's being discussed here. Um, with regard to the anonymous sources, I just think uh, it's worth noting that that is kind of a new development. It's not a brand new development, but I don't think that the reliance on anonymous sources was as common at the time that New York Times versus Sullivan was decided. You mentioned Deep Throat and Watergate, that goes back quite a ways, but it's still several years after New York Times versus Sullivan. Uh, so this is a post New York Times versus Sullivan development that has created certain issues or problems in defamation law that I think the uh, legislators are trying to address. Um, yeah. Um, Lana, you know, the bill yeah. is broader than just that one issue that you've talked about. There are some very non-controversial portions of the bill, like shifting of attorney's fees, venue provisions, um, and, and other areas that I think folks would agree are not controversial constitutionally. So, you know, just keep in mind, it's a broader bill than, than the portions you're highlighting. 100%. And I just want to throw out there that the one of the constraints of television news is time. And I wish we had four hours to talk about every single part of the bill, but we don't. Um, so let me just leave it here and say that bill is online. Everyone can read hashtag read the bill, read it for everyone.
everyone's own firsthand information. So Carson Holloway and Bella Friedman, it is so good of you to give up a little piece of your Sunday morning. This was a really fascinating discussion and I appreciate you both. Thanks a lot, Lana. Thank you, Lana. Up next, on the rails, over the traffic, and to the beach. A decades-old plan for train service across the bay is now in the works, and so is the blowback. Stay tuned. among us has been spared sitting at some point in stifling South Florida traffic. Now picture you're on an island and you're trapped and you can't get in and get to work or you can't get out and go home. Miami Beach is increasingly like that, which brings us to the idea 30 years in the making rail service as an option across the bay. The plan has gone through several incarnations and it's now planned with dates attached as an extension of Metro Rail. Those spearheading what is called Baylink have been test driving that plan in the community meetings and finding some pretty loud opposition. But not from Matthew Goltanoff, who is founder of a group called Better Streets Miami Beach, who is fully on board with Baylink. Matthew, so good of you to be with us today. Thank you, and Glenna, thank you so much for having me on this afternoon. Of course. So to bring everyone up to speed, the reason we are talking about it this week is uh, the, the news hook, as we like to say, was the Miami Beach City Commission took this up uh, earlier this week and kind of punted on it, but my word. Um, and so there are a couple of commissioners who actually had been on the record of really loving this idea, but they want to know many more details that are available to them right now. They say, is that is that fair? So just one small correction. It's Metro Mover, not Metro Rail. Metro Mover, That's okay, which is which is a smaller version of the big Metro Rail that goes downtown yes. and to the beach. Correct. It's a smaller version. It's a quieter version and has less of an impact of those that live nearby to the tracks. Um, you know, in terms of the pushback that we're getting from some of the commissioners, you know, it's a little bit disappointing. We hear all the time about how bad traffic is but they're willing to do everything and try everything except for a proven strategy, which is expanding our rapid transit system that we have already that's very successful in the city of Miami and bringing it over to Miami Beach, which as you mentioned, has been going on for decades or at least the planning for this. So the actual plan is uh, part the county, Miami-Dade County, which is why it's an extension of Metro Rail Metro Mover and also the Florida Department of Transportation, and, and it's in the works right now, but there is opposition from certain community groups and um, the people who live on Fisher Island because the place where this is going to go is across the MacArthur. Everyone in South Florida can kind of picture the causeway that goes by the port of Miami. And, um, and so the people on Fisher Island, their attorney sent a letter, they want environmental studies, which there have already been. What do you make of the opposition to people who think that this will bring more traffic, which is kind of cognitive dissidence because it's supposed to alleviate traffic? What do you, what do you make of that argument? Absolutely. Every single person that is going to be taking Metro Mover or Baylink across from Miami Beach to Miami and vice versa is potentially someone that would have been in an Uber or would have been in their own private car. So whether or not you're someone that supports riding public transportation yourself, if Baylink is built and the tens of thousands of folks that are projected to ride it do in fact ride it, it will benefit everyone. Even the folks that live on Fisher Island uh, that have been, uh, you know, that have raised some concerns. And I think it's important that we don't dismiss the concerns that have been raised by those folks or the folks that live in the towers near Fifth Street. 
But there are many, many, many people that do support this. In fact, in my goings and talking to people around Miami Beach and in the city of Miami, there's overwhelming support for bailing. People are fed up with the traffic and they want to see something done. And of course, this is uh, the latest iteration. The planning started in 2016 as part of the, the county smart plan. So there is something that's ready to go. And if it does move forward, again, as you said, it's a county and a state project. It's not a city of Miami Beach project. It could potentially be open by the end of this decade. I want to go back to something you said, overwhelming support. Um, is that anecdotal for you? Because there are a lot of people who come and go from Miami Beach, um, tens of thousands, and the last, um, the last number I saw are 60,000 who come and go every day for work. And, um, and then there's the people who live there. So, so sort of detail for me what kind of support you've been finding. People who live, people who work, what does that look like? Yeah, so I mean, it's important to also mention in 2004, there was a straw vote conducted during the presidential election and by nearly 10 point margin, Miami Beach voters supported Baylink. And uh, the other thing to keep in mind is that people come and go in the city and some of the folks that may be opposing the project, they won't be around. And likewise, those that are supporting may not be around uh, as well, but it's not just for residents that live here today or visitors that are coming today, but it's also uh, for tomorrow. With respect to the support, for instance, uh, Better Streets Miami Beach, along with other advocates in the city of Miami Beach, we started a petition and we have over 1,500 signatures. It's been about a week that the petition's been out. But in terms of you know what, when I'm out about in the, on the street and talking to people, this also has come up in just, uh, you know conversation naturally among people on Miami Beach. And there, there is a lot of support. If you step away for a moment, the echo chamber, that's Facebook, where, where overwhelmingly, unfortunately, a lot of people like to complain about things. But if you step outside of that city hall echo chamber and the same group of folks that seem to drive uh, agendas in this city, there are people that, that do see the benefit of having a link, a mass transit link, that is above the chaos on the ground level and gives folks an option. The biggest opposition I've heard this week is the lack of detail. There is no the um, government process that is the RFP, the request for proposals. That is not out yet. My understanding, I guess, from the paperwork that's filed with the county is that the Florida Department of Transportation is waiting for a couple of other technical reviews that they don't have yet in order to issue that document which will specify all of the details. Um, is, is it fair for people, especially Miami Beach commissioners, to want to take a step back and see what the details are? Look, at this stage, the support that's being seeked by, from City of Miami Beach commissioners is endorsing the concept, right? This concept has been nearly 30 years in the making, or actually over 30 years in the making. No one is saying we have 100% finalized plans and we need your we need your signature on every little detail of this project. Rather, it's do you support the idea of bringing rail, or in this case, mass remover, from downtown, connecting to the vast regional network that exists today, over to Miami Beach, over the MacArthur Causeway? Uh, you know, one important detail, and I keep hearing that there hasn't been enough outreach, or there hasn't been enough community, meter, uh, community meetings. They started in 2017 as part of the SMART plan. And I was going through some documents looking at sign-in sheets from the first meeting at the New World Center. In fact, there was only one Miami Beach commissioner that attended that meeting, and that was then uh, commissioner, and, and again, commissioner now, Rosen Gonzalez, Krista Rosen Gonzalez. She was the only one that attended. 
Um, but even more so, I, you know, this Matt, is a, Matt. Um, yes. I, we got to go for time, but uh, I will say, please do keep in touch because we absolutely will be watching this, as they say in my business. Stay tuned. <laughs> Thanks for being with us. Again, thank you so much for having right. me today. Great. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. You know you are such a big part of this program. Look at the screen right there. Connect easily with us on social media. Find, follow, reach out at Glenna WPLG on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you so much for being with us this hour. And remember, keep in touch.